Well, good morning. How you doing? Just a couple of things before we begin. One, David, you have no idea how much I want to press these buttons. Um, I would love to see what your guitar sounds like in about 20 minutes after I meddle with some of these things. Uh, two, if you haven't heard, next week we're starting at a different time. It's, thank you for asking. Now, in all serious, uh, seriousness, um, we hope you can be here at 945. It's going to be a great time. Um, community is an act of worship, and when we gather together in his name, that is an act of worship. And so we hope you'll join us in this um, new area of worship that we're, that we're going to be doing next week starting at 945. And uh, the last thing is, I don't know, Michelle or Matt, which one it is, but one of you has huge ears, because this mic is all over the place. So, so if you see me going like this, it's because I'm trying to keep up with the mic that's floating off my face. Um, and I pray that you will be kind to me. Um, just a quick review. Um, we're in our fourth week of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, just quick summary. Um, we started off talking about our Father in Heaven, and one of the things that we, we brought out was this concept of our, how Jesus invites us into this relationship that He has with the Father, and it's a relationship of trust and obedience. And we hallow His name, and we revere His name because we understand the concept of the Tamion that says that God has provided everything we need before we even need it. And it's the responsibility of the firstborn son to make sure that everything we need is available to us. And it's provided through the resources of the Father. So we have our Father. And then we have uh, your kingdom come. Um, I saw more tweets on this one than any other sermon that we've done in a long time. And Pastor Michelle talked about the fact that um, the length of time we need to spend in prayer is probably determined by how long it takes us to truly say, not my will, but your will. Um, great truth. And then Matt talked to us about uh, forgiving us, being forgiven, and being forgiven people. Um, forgiveness is the road. You know, th there's, not, there's not a better way or another way through true healing unless we are willing to forgive others in the way that Christ has forgiven us. And so that, that's a hard lesson to learn because we like, um, we like holding our grudges and we like our pain, but until we're truly able to release them and let go, we will never truly understand the depth of forgiveness that we have. Um, and so today we're talking about lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time there but before we do, if we could, let me pray, and then we're going to put the words on the screen um, at the close of my prayer. If we could pray the Lord's Prayer together to kind of start us off, um, let's do that. So let's, let's begin by praying, God, Father, I'm your servant today, and we are your people. So would you open our hearts and our minds through the power of your Spirit? So that as the scriptures read, as we, as we open up the word and we learn more about you, we may hear and respond with joy with what you're saying to us today. 
And we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. I have a trivia question for you. This is how we're going to start things off. And Pastor Matt and Lisa, you cannot answer because I spoke to you both about this at some point during the week. So here's my question. Is there anyone here that can tell me, this is a sports trivia question, what am I referring to when I mention the game? Oh, see, you've totally sidetracked my sermon, because that really is a good game. 1992 Kentucky-Duke game where Christian Leitner caught the ball, turned around, fade away, Duke beats Kentucky, and everyone from Texas is glad because it's not Texas, so we can be glad for Duke. That's a good one, but no, that's not it. But why don't we sit there for a while and talk about Duke a little longer? Now, anyone else? Game? Ohio State-Michigan. State, great rivalry. Great rivalry. That is not the game. It is, I will tell you, we'll narrow it down, it is a football event. The game was a football event. The Bears. The Bears. No. That was good. That was a good one. Was that the crushing, uh, was it like 147 to 3? Something like that. No, that's not it. The game was. <laughs> was just ruined. For those of you in podcast land, my answer was given beforehand. The Harvard-Yale game. Now, this is deceptive. This is, uh, it was not actually 1903 where the game happened, but this was just to show that it was Harvard and Yale. Yes, Harvard and Yale, these two powerhouses of football, as we all know. Um, they've had a rivalry for over 125 years. Now, just to set this up, in 1892, Harvard implemented something that would change football forever. It's the first time recorded that a football team used what is called the flying wedge. The flying wedge. Isn't that, aren't you glad you came? You're going to learn a little bit about the Bible. You're going to learn a bit about the flying wedge. The flying wedge. Now, the flying wedge was basically a wedge formation. They'd have the person with the football in the middle, and everybody would just run down the field and plow over anyone that they saw. Okay, so you with me? This was very dangerous. Very dangerous. In fact, in, in 1894, seven people were carried off the field. One um, sports commentator put, in dying condition. And, and 
I know, I was like, oh yeah, whatever. But actually, it did report that five of them were actually taken to the hospital because of injuries sustained in this football game. So it was very dangerous. This wedge, when, when you come up against the wedge, everybody loses. It is just power against power, and the wedge is pretty much undefensible. Yeah, I mean, you, you cannot create a good defense for the wedge. Uh, but because it's so dangerous, they banned it in football. It's been banned for over 100 years. In fact, and it's not just one of those rules that, oh yeah, we did that a long time ago. Um, as recently as 2009, they were still updating and revising the bans on the wedge because this was a serious thing. So we have this, this ban on the wedge, but the wedge wasn't a Harvard thing. The wedge actually dates back. The first known incident of using a wedge was actually in the military. Alexander the Great in the fourth century BC used the wedge to pretty much take over what was the known world. Um, so this was pretty serious. So we've got this wedge. Um, I love um, one of the, um, the Yale coaches in 1916 said this, gentlemen, you're now going to play football against Harvard. Never again in your whole life will you do anything so important. And just in case you were wondering, I was trying to sound like Alec Baldwin because he's my serious voice person. <laughs> Gentlemen. So, um, so this was big. This was big. Alexander the Great used it. Um, Harvard used it for a very short time. We see it in nature, geese flying in formation. There is power in this wedge. You with me? Now let's step over to our text. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Is anyone else confused by this? This has always been the phrase in the Lord's Prayer that I've been like, lead us not into temptation. Well, James tells us God would never do that, so what does that mean? That has to mean something else. So, let's dive a little bit into this lead us not into temptation. Now, there are two basic ways we can view this temptation when we go back to the Greek. One is, it is a testing to mislead. It's, I'm, I'm testing you, I'm hoping to stump you or fool you or mislead you. But we know that that's not the way God is. So that's probably not what Jesus was saying. The second um, definition for testing would be a testing to prove. Something has been tried and tested and proven to be true. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I think, um, and most commentators think, that's probably more where Jesus is going. So let's spend a little bit of time on that. Um, do you have your Bibles? Did anybody bring a Bible? Awesome! Well, we're going to have the scriptures on the board, but um, I'm going to use the Bible because I like the Bible. Um, let's look for a second um, at a passage in Genesis. If you were living in the day of Jesus and you heard, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, one person would automatically pop into your mind. And that would be Adam. And when we go back to Genesis 3, 
we see God saying, have you eaten the fruit I've commanded you not to eat? Yes, Adam admitted, but it, it was the woman you gave me who brought me the fruit, so I ate it. Then the Lord asked the woman, how could you do such a thing? The serpent tricked me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Now, interesting, if you go, if you look at the Greek and the Hebrew equivalent, this tricked is the same meaning as Jesus when he says tempted. However, Eve is not using this word correctly. Instead of saying, God, you, you, you told us not to do this. We should have had faith in you. We should have kept this relationship with you. Instead, we say, oh, oh, but I was tricked. It wasn't, it wasn't my fault. It, I was tricked. It's not, God, you gave me an opportunity to grow closer with you. It's, it, it wasn't my fault. Somebody else made me do it. And Eve and Adam start us down the slippery slope that would have us for the rest of our lives, it seems like, backtracking and trying to blame others. But what it boils down to is Adam and Eve that day chose autonomy over relationship with God. They said, God, I know you have a plan, I know you have a will, but I think if it's all right with you, I'd rather table it and do what I want to do right now. And the world has been spinning, reeling through... Um, chaos ever since then. But there's another person that they probably would have thought of. You have Adam, who is this terrible example of someone that was proved and they didn't pass the test. But then if you skip over just a couple more verses to Genesis chapter 22, you see Abraham. You see our hero. You see this man who was tested and proved faithful. In Genesis 22, I noticed just from the beginning, the very title of the passage is Abraham's Obedience Tested. And this is what he says. Uh, Later on, God tested Abraham's faith and obedience, and basically I'm going to summarize. God said, I want you to take your son, this son that I promised to give you, this son that I promised would be the lineage for an entire nation, for my people. I want you to sacrifice him. And this is what Abraham responded. This is how he responded. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, and he took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood to build a fire for a burnt offering, and he set out for the place where God had told him to go. So here we have this testing of Abraham, and God saying, are you going to trust me? Are you going to be obedient? Are you going to do what I ask you to do and trust that I know what's best? And Abraham's immediate response is, let's go, God. I don't know how you're going to do it, but let's do it. I'm with you. And we have this honoring of God and this hallowing and revering of God because of immediate obedience. And I love if you turn to Hebrews, we're going to be skipping for just a couple of minutes to different passages, but I think this is important. Hebrews 11, chapter 17 talks about, uh, chapter 11, verses 17 and 19 talks about Abraham. This is what he says. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Same word that Jesus uses. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac 
Though God had promised him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham assumed that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. So we see this Abraham that chose relationship over autonomy. We've got Adam who said, I'm going to do it my way. Sorry, God, we'll try your way later. Versus Abraham who said, God, you are the only way. I trust you completely. Let's do it. And the people hearing the scripture this day would have thought of these two people. And they naturally would have thought, oh, how I wish I could forget about Adam. How I wish he wasn't in our story. Now Abraham, I like him. He's our hero. We like him. But I love what Paul does. He's writing to the church in Rome. And he takes this bad apple, Adam, And he turns it around to completely focus our attention on Christ. And this is what he says in chapter 5 of Romans. The sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over us. But all who receive God's wonderful, gracious gift of righteousness will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brought condemnation upon everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness makes all people right in God's sight and gives them life. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made right in God's sight. So Paul takes this this bad apple, Adam, and he says, you know what? Adam is a good example because he shows us what we shouldn't do. How living life without God, living life in autonomy, not having regard for God, his will, his kingdom, his ways, is a good way to die. But this Jesus offers us a better way. Jesus was able to withstand the temptations, and we need to be more like Jesus. And he'd go on to say in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, when he's talking to the church in Corinth, remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different than what others experience. And God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand against it. And when you are tested, he will show you a way out so that you will not give into it. So basically, Paul's saying, we do not have to cave in to these temptations if we want to take them as bad things, or we can stand up in this temptation if we want to take it as this proving, this becoming what God wants, this act of obedience, this line in the sand where we say, God, I am yours, and we can rise above it. Now, The um, English person in me will also point out, not. Lead us not into temptation. This is the only negative in the entire prayer. Um, And I was reading about that word, not. 
And what I'm learning is that there are many times in my life when I have chosen to say, God, I can handle this. Bring it on. I'm strong. I can do it. And I imagine there are a lot of us in this, in this congregation that have done the same thing. God, things are going well. I've been reading your word. I'm feeling up to the task. Lead me into battle. I'll storm the gates of heaven or storm the gates of hell or I'm the person. Let's do it. But the problem is that kind of leads us to this heroism situation where we say, I can do it. I'm ready. Send me in. Do you see how everything is focused on the wrong person? When the truth is, with Christ, yes, we can do anything, but without Christ, we are no match for what is up against us. And so we don't pray, God, lead me into temptation because I'm ready to be a cavalier soldier. We pray, God, keep me as far away from this temptation as I can be because I trust you so completely, but in my weakness, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to want my own way. My default is me instead of you. So God, keep me as far away from these temptations and these evils as you can because I want what you want. And so before I'm even in the situation, I pray, God, keep me from it. But if you can't, I pray like Paul, give me the strength to stand above it so that it is not an issue for me. Bring me through it. Amen? So we have this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, about half the Bibles translate this, deliver us from evil, and about half of them deliver, say, deliver us from the evil one. And how we view this puts a, an entirely different spin on what we're trying to say. But the simple truth is, most commentaries would say it's kind of a both and. If we're technically looking at it, that from, um, we say from, we've got one word for it. The Greeks had two words for it, and it was from something or from someone, and you used a different from, whether it was, I'm in a pit, I need to be delivered from this hole, or this man is chasing me down the Kroger aisle, I need to be delivered from this person. You see the difference? We just say from. It's a catch-all preposition, I guess. But they had two different words. Now, Jesus used the word that said, deliver us from someone. And whether you want to call him Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, we're talking about Lucifer. We're talking about this fallen angel that looked God in the face, that stood in his presence and said, you're pretty creative, God, but I think I could do better. I think I'm going to have a go at my own life, at my own way. It's this person that Jesus is saying, deliver us from. But the truth is, Satan leaves in his wake destruction, evil, temptations. So really, it is a both and, because we're praying, God, deliver us from this evil one that is out to get us, but it's also deliver us from evil. Deliver us from what Paul would say is those powers and principalities that war against us. 
Because we know that there are things that war against us, and we need deliverance. So we have evil as something very personal. We are praying to be delivered from Satan, but evil is also impersonal in the fact that it takes on many other shades than just the shade of Satan. Uh, just a couple examples. Some of them are very obvious. We could look back and we could say, well, Hitler's regime, that was evil. Well, you know, the, the KKK, that's evil. There are some that are really obvious, but then there are some that are a little more subtle and we get a little closer to the line with them than others. For example, um, our economy. Dollar is king. And Wall Street is its slave and our taskmaster. And it's all about earning that next buck. If we're not careful, economy and money can become an evil. Wars. We like our power. We like to tell other people how powerful we are. Wars. That's a power or a principality that we fight against. Gender biases, racial issues. Um, the pastoral team a couple months ago was at a luncheon, um, and one of the evils that they talked about was human trafficking. Did you know that Houston is a huge global hub for human trafficking? Because of our international ports, because of our roadways, because um, in 2009 it said 6,000 runaway kids were in Texas, we are prime for human trafficking. What an evil that's right in our midst. I live in Copperfield, and about a year ago, they had a bust with a human trafficking ring down the road from where I live. And then the last one I'll, I'll just briefly mention. Uh, Wednesday, I was watching the news um, and broke my heart. In a very casual and passing way, the news reporter said this, and in a recent survey, Houston was listed as the third as the city with the third highest rate of adultery. And then the other anchor said, well, maybe that's because, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he cracked a joke, and my heart broke. And we can live in our bubble in our house and in our church and in our school and in our carpools, and we can say, well, evil's not around us. But if we do, we're only fooling ourselves. Evil is around. Paul talks about these principalities and these powers, and maybe that's why immediately after he talks about that in Ephesians 6, he says, so put on the armor of God. It's as if he's saying, it's there. You can accept it or you can deny it, but it's there. So what are you going to do? Put on the whole armor of God so that you can withstand these powers and principalities. And I sit there, and I was watching the news, and I listened to the other things that are happening, you know. I mean, we could go on and on about these principalities, these evils these, that, are, that are around us. And I just thought, that looks an awful lot like us sometimes. We may not be promoting genocide in Rwanda. We may not be promoting human trafficking, 
But really, all of these atrocities boil down to somebody said, I'm going to be in charge, and I'm going to have my way, and I would much rather do my will than God's will. I'd much rather take matters into my own hand. And it's like this Adam syndrome all over again. I'm going to have my way. God, your will is going to wait. And when we refuse to align ourselves with God's will and God's kingdom, we're going to have troubles. We're going to end up not where we want to be. It reminds me of Rich Mullins. Um, he had a song, and one of the phrases said, Surrender don't come natural for me. I'd rather fight you for what I don't even want than to take what you give that I need. We just have this bent for, I want my will. I want me. It's all about me. Am I getting that raise? I deserve this. My family should be doing this. And the temptation, a lot of times, is these outward, impersonal things but in reality, these outward and personal things are reflections of these inward personal things. Chaos without happens because there is usually chaos within. And so we pray, God, deliver us. Deliver us from these evils. This word deliver, this isn't a God. Get me out of the speeding ticket. It's not, God, I'd like to have a raise, or, 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 or God, if you can help me out of this. I mean, I could do it, but it'd be more convenient if you could do it. No, no, no. This deliver is crisis mode. This is a God, you've got to rescue me. If you don't rescue me, I am lost. This is David crying out when he's in the cave, and he says, God, the king is after me. He wants to kill me. If you don't protect me, I am without hope. It's me against an army. You have got to rescue and deliver me. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the fact that we have to say, God, without you, I am nothing. I choose to trust you. I choose to obey you. I trust you to deliver me. God, help me. It's also a very similar prayer to what Jesus would, in just a few short days, pray in the garden. And he said, God, I don't want this cup. I don't want to die. I don't want to do this. But I trust you. And I trust your plan. And if this is the road you have for me, if this is what you want, God, then give me the strength to be delivered from this testing so that I don't self-destruct, but I rise above it and I follow you and I trust you and I obey you. So this is a very personal prayer for Jesus. This is something that Jesus would be praying in just a few short days. So we've got, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I know the first, the, the thing that's been going through everyone's mind is, why do you start with the flying wedge? Isn't it? If it wasn't, it is now. 
In the book, Living the Lord's Prayer, um, Weigel and Freeborn, um, they, did a, they set up this prayer in a very interesting way. And the entire book is set up around this premise that the first half of the prayer coincides with the second half of the prayer. Do we have a picture of that? This was fascinating to me. It's a great book. You need to get it. Living the Lord's Prayer. Basically, they said, the first thing we need to remember is that it's all about grace. Grace is the anchor that holds us down. Grace is the lens through which we pray. Grace is the mode by which God delivers us and we impact the world. It's all about grace. And at the very tip of this wedge is this daily bread, this this place where we say, God, I trust you. I trust you for my needs. I trust you for everything. It goes back to the Tamion. I trust you completely. Give me my daily bread, and I trust you, and I will obey you. And because of that, I can forgive. I can offer forgiveness to others, because I know that that's your will. You did that for me. That was clearly your will. So it's my joy to do that for you. I offer forgiveness because that's your will. I pray, God, keep me out of temptation. Temptation, when I cave to it, it's just me saying it's my kingdom. That's what it's all about. It's, I'm going to rule. Keep me from temptation because your kingdom is better. Your kingdom is justice. Your kingdom is peace. Your kingdom is joy. My kingdom is destruction. So deliver, so keep me from these temptations. And when you deliver me, I will hallow your name because only a God as great as you could save me in such a crisis as my life. So I hallow your name because you've delivered me. And I live in your kingdom, which will keep me from temptation. And I say, God, may your will be done, and your will is reconciliation to the world, and that involves my forgiveness. And I can do all this because I know that you're providing for me, and I know that it's all done through the lens of grace. So let me ask you, how's your prayer life? And I'm not saying, do you pray this prayer? I mean, this is just a medium. This is is a pattern. It's a model. But as I read this prayer, and as we've been studying it, it just feels like, I feel like I could almost boil this prayer down to, our Father, yes. 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 Yes, I trust you. Yes, I obey you. Yes, yes, yes. So how's your prayer life? Are you ready to say yes? Have you already done it? If not, now is the perfect time to say yes. If you've already done it, now is the time to reaffirm yes. When we... When we truly say yes to God and we live in this Lord's Prayer, it changes us. 
It changes how we treat each other. It changes our view of our Heavenly Father. It affects the way we look at the world. It affects the way we watch the news and see these powers that are at struggle. It affects the way we see our coworkers and we start to see these inward bents that, that we all fight against, these powers, these principalities. And God, we, and we just say, yes, yes, Father. You've chosen a better way for me and I choose yes. Would you stand with me? And we, we don't have the words, but I, I think you will know this. There were, there were two songs that came to mind when I was thinking of how to end this. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And one of them was this. Sing with me. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That may be new for some of you. Let's sing it again. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and oh. And it made me think, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Yeah? And so I could sing, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust you more. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you have called us into lives of complete obedience and in, into lives of complete trust in you. And this kind of life leads us to hallow your name in a new and a deeper way. And, and it, the life you've called us to, this obedience and trust, it, it helps us to say wholeheartedly, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not simply a prayer for the world, but it's a personal prayer. It's a call to a newer level of intimacy, God, and we want that. We choose that today. We know that you, Father, are the only one for complete deliverance from the evil one and for the evil powers that war against us inside our hearts and outside our lives. But we know that you are stronger. We know that you are more than enough. We know that if we trust and obey you, you will keep us in the center of your hand. May we live our lives in your power and strength and we pray this in your son's name, through your spirit's power, and for your glory. Amen.